I mean, the idea when Bitcoin first came along was that you were taking the power away from the governments and the banks. Where there were internal conflicts in those countries uh, and the international community decided to help. And I can remember them coming back very thin and yellow and very weary of fighting. Welcome to episode five of series two of the Dyson House podcast from the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I'm your host, Cameron Christie. Today, I'm joined by Stephanie Woolard, founder and director of Seven Women. Stephanie began Seven Women at the age of 22 after meeting disabled women working in a tin shed in Kathmandu, Nepal. With her last $200, she paid for trainers to teach the women how to produce products for sale and has now assisted over 5,000 women in this way. She's also founded a cooking school in Nepal, as well as a responsible travel company named Hands-On Development, and in 2016, received the United Nations Rotary International Responsible Business Award. Today, we discuss how anybody can make a difference through social entrepreneurship. Seth Willard, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Welcome, it's great to be here. Um, so perhaps to start, maybe um, if you could tell us a bit about yourself and Seven Women. So Seven Women started when I was... 22 years old, I was in Nepal as a traveller and met seven disabled women that were living in a tin shed in the back streets of Kathmandu on my travels and heard their story. So one of the women, her name was Sangeeta, she spoke broken English and she told me that the stories of the women, that because they were physically disabled, they were seen by their societies and communities as being evil in a past life. So they, in fact, were living in this tin shed trying to make ends meet through making candles and soaps. But uh, because they were physically disabled looking, no one was buying their products off them. So, And it was just by chance that I came across these women. I was actually leading groups of architects through Duke of Edinburgh at the time and stayed on for a few extra weeks when the group came back to uh, Melbourne. And... Yeah, saw an extremely disabled woman ahead of me walking with two heavy bags and was kind of my curious self, wanted to know where she was heading and if she needed some help. And she turned into this tiny tin shed and that's how I came across the women. So there was no intention at the beginning of your trip in Nepal to, to start an organisation then? It was more like a sort of spontaneous reaction to the things you experienced there? Yeah, I had, I had no plan to start an organisation, but I, I always, as a young person, and as I see in many young people that I speak you know, at events with young audiences today, wanting to make a difference and having that curiosity to learn more about the world and where they can make impact in their, in their future careers. So I always had that as a very strong desire that I think my parents planted at a young age. And uh, was that was one of the reasons why I was in Nepal in the first place. And was very moved and inspired by the generosity of the people and then went back as in, in the leadership capacity through Duke of Edinburgh, uh, which was when I met the women. So no plans to start an organisation before I met them, but seeing that need and hearing their stories made me want to make a difference. How exactly do seven uh, women operate to, to sort of help to sell those products or to, to manufacture them? Is it more about providing access to a market or... Um, is it specific training? So when I when I initially met the women and heard their stories, I had about $200 left. I was heading home in a few days and thought, how can I make the most of this money or how can I help that in a way that's sustainable? And I remember being quite disturbed by their stories. Um, some of them had been hidden in back rooms of their houses to by their families to hide their disabilities because their families didn't want the community to know that they had a disabled 
child because they too would be isolated. Um, and so I remember walking to the nearest in internet cafe and phoning home to mum and saying, mum, I've got this $200 and I've met these women who are living in this tin shed. Do you think one person can make a difference? Do you think I can make a difference? And I remember mum saying, you know, go for it. We'll support you. You'll be able to make some sort of a difference. But then it was kind of like, okay, what? So we had $200. I went back to visit the women every day in the tin shed and we decided together that we would use that $200 to pay for two Nepalese trainers to come and train the women in skills so they could you know, access this raw material wool. We decided, you know, wool, um, because that was readily available in the local market, that they could create products and I could, you know, sell them in Australia and raise the first bit of money. And that's how our manufacturing business began, very small scale. The women made about 12 products in the beginning uh, after they'd been trained and I took them back with me uh, to sell them back in Melbourne very unsuccessfully the first time I, I tried. I had a bit of a Tupperware party in my lounge room with you know, invited family and friends over to hear the story and I thought they were going to sell like hotcakes and they ended up, ended up selling none of them. Everyone left uh, the end of the night saying, you know, I'm happy to donate but keep the products. And that's when I kind of thought, okay, um, this is not working. So then it was about understanding what the women's skill levels were at that you know, very beginning uh, time period and what would sell in the local market here that we could generate some funds uh, and not, not kind of start down the track of just asking people for money. What was it that gave you the confidence to undertake such a big task? I mean, setting up an international business at such a young age. I think in the beginning, it wasn't a question of confidence for me. It was um, just being inspired or you know, inspired by the ability that these women had, even though their society saw them as disabled and useless in many respects, is how they're viewed. Me seeing, you know, they had amazing ability. They had the determination. They were already making soaps and candles and every day that I went back to visit them at their tiny tin shed I saw on the way them you know two of them walking around the local market trying to sell day after day after being knocked back you know shop after shop so I I just saw possibility and opportunity to actually train these women up and you know and and I was determined by the fact you know by the injustice of their stories and and what was happening so it wasn't for me, you know, I didn't have any grand visions in the beginning. It was just how can I do my bit to support these women to become independent themselves and improve their own quality of life and you know, at least get them a proper bed and blanket that they can um, sleep properly at night. How has the business itself developed over the last 10 or so years it's been operating now? Is that right? Yeah, so we've we've developed through building different enterprises. So the, the women learning how to make knitted products and then many others since, silk products and different accessories. That has become a manufacturing business that's employed over a thousand disabled and marginalised women now in Nepal. And it's they also export directly from Kathmandu, the centre, to different European countries. Uh, but at the six year mark, we kind of thought this in itself is not a sustainable model because they're really depending on me at the time to import the products here and you know we were we were wholesaling to about 200 shops around Australia and that's how we were generating funds for the programs in Nepal. Uh, 
So we thought, what would be a way that we could generate local income in Nepal? And it was actually our country manager, Anita, who said, no, what about cooking classes? Because she loves to cook. And, and we thought that that's a fantastic idea because 7% seven of Nepal's GDP is uh, the tourism market. And, you know, if you look back through history, it's been aid and tourism that's injected the most money, you know, into Nepal from, from outside of Nepal. So we thought, how can we make the most of that? So we, we started cooking classes just in our centre um, head office kitchen where we practised on the groups that I was bringing across. I've got a tour company myself called Hands On Development. So I was bringing groups of uni students across and they loved it. So we did a bit of a test and thought this is actually a viable business. So then we partnered with the bigger tour companies that operate in Nepal, such as Intrepid and World Expeditions and World Challenge, who now bring groups to our centre almost every day to do cooking classes. And that's really generated a fantastic local income for us. Uh, not only generating a local income, but tr giving disabled and marginalised women an opportunity to share their culture, learn hospitality skills, learn you know, culinary skills that could then lead them onto employment pathways in the hospitality industry. And do you find that particularly the travel company bringing people over into Nepal is um, quite important to shaping ideas and inspiring people to, I suppose, to try and make change themselves? That's a great question because it's the, I started the tour company because of the value, the huge value that I got when I actually visited Nepal as part of Duke of Ed at the same time I was studying at La Trobe University. So I was studying international development and went on the trip during that time. And when I came back, I thought, this has just enriched my learning so much. I can now relate what I'm learning to my experiences in Nepal. So I really wanted to share that with other university students. And now it's now it's gone on to, you know, we take high school students and uh, the general public as well. But absolutely, the tour company was started to to inspire people that visit Nepal through learning, learning the Nepali culture and learning about social entrepreneurship. Uh, to come back and make a difference on issues that matter to them. I'd be interested to know as well how you feel that attitudes towards um, women and disability have evolved in the time that you've been involved in uh, involved in the pot. So that's that's kind of the underlying uh, cause, the patriarchal society that Nepal is, and the culture and the the culture that young men and women grow up in that you know women are second-rate citizens and they should be there to support the males in the family uh, and you know housebound basically which a lot of women in the villages are uh, it's changing slightly in Kathmandu now um, but it's it's still very much a patriarchal society which is why we see so many women who uh, facing domestic violence, uh, so, so so much stigma associated with uh, widows whose partners may have passed away, and often it's blamed on the wife that she cursed him, or you know it was her fault somehow that the the partner died, um, and also a lot of single mothers that have, in our experience, in the in the, you know over five thousand women that we've had come through, seven women, many many single mothers that have become single because they've had girl children instead of boys and you know after the second child having a, a girl the husband's decided that 
um, she's incapable of having a boy, so moved on. I think it is shifting in, in the 12 years that we've been involved. It, with, with our work in the villages um, in, in regards to disabled women, it's been really interesting to see that shift in the kind of community environment because when the women start to earn money, they start to gain a voice and they start to be respected in their societies and communities. And um, I did a master's in peace and conflict research in Sweden at Uppsala University. And my thesis was on, you know, is it economic empowerment or is it social empowerment that lead to such outcomes? And the, the findings that I kind of discovered were it's both. It's both the women gaining confidence through earning money and, and then becoming more confident, but also them having more money uh, makes people listen in, in a poor country like Nepal where money talks. So I suppose that um, that really demonstrates the importance of, as, as you would say, the, the benefits of trade over aid in that that in itself empowers the individual to, I suppose, to carry on from the change that you're making and, and sort of take control of their own destiny. Exactly. And from the very beginning of Seven Women, I was very lucky to um, have visited a number of different charities in Nepal before I met the women. I was very curious to see how uh, organisations made a real and lasting change as opposed to just handing out free stuff, which, um, you know, I had a few experiences in Nepal where I'd seen charities that had become uh, corrupt and you know, used the money for their own purposes. So that sparked my curiosity and I realised very quickly that um, charities that invested in skills training and capacity building uh, were far more effective than those that just gave things for free. So from the very beginning of Seven Women, rather than you know giving the $200 to the women, which would run out in you know a week, you know how could we invest that money in, in something that would keep giving skills training and capacity to these women, which was the training. So um, Seven Women's always been about how can we support, you know, the, those that are suffering most in Nepali society, which is women, uh, definitely, and disabled people? How can we support them through business, you know, with the business approach, even though 100% of the profits go back into programs? Um, so we started off with business, but then we quickly realised that actually it all starts with education, uh, because without learning how to count and read, uh, the women can't budget and they also, you know, they get ripped off in the local market. They can't, um, they can't use their money properly. So that's when we introduced our education, um, literacy and numeracy in the remote villages that we're working in. And did you face any sort of difficulty in putting this organisation together in the first place? Was it well received or was there... Oh, so many challenges in the beginning and, and even to this day, you know, 12 years now um, that we've been in existence and every step of the way it's, it's getting a little bit easier because we've got a fantastic team in the pool but there are so many challenges in terms of um, you know the language barrier at the beginning I didn't speak Nepalese in the beginning um, now I I can understand most of what's going on and, and speak um, to, to kind of get me by and uh, just the quality of the products but that took a long time for the women to learn how to create quality products that we you know where the ears weren't falling off the hand puppets and the I remember getting 200 cockatoo hand puppets sent to um, Melbourne Tullamarine Airport got them in the car took them you know got them home to the family garage and opened the box and there were 200 cockatoo hand puppets all missing their beaks and I just thought 
This is so difficult. I thought it was going to be easy. You know, you, you train the women up, they make products, you can sell them, raise money and, and to support the centre over there. But um, it was so much more challenging than that and it probably took about three or four years until, uh, you know, of me thinking, is this thing ever going to take off uh, before it actually grew into a sustainable enterprise where I could be confident to order the products wholesale and you know what I was receiving was going to be what exactly what I ordered to be able to on sell to the shops. And at this stage what is your product range like? What can we get and where can we find it? So we've been selling the products for the past uh, 10, 11 years and they've been um, children's felt products uh, so you know hand puppets, finger puppets, toys and then uh, women's accessories so silk gowns and silk scarves and um, bit of bit of cotton woven um, scarves and products as well and uh, woolen knitted products. So we've just we're just phasing that out at the moment because we've been working really hard to make it sustainable in Nepal. So rather than us importing products and selling to shops, we've just linked up the bigger, customers directly to the center in Kathmandu so they can order direct and that um, saves a lot of you know time and effort and energy at this end um, there's been about 50 volunteers at any one time that have been you know, picking and packing the products sending them out and doing all the other aspects of the business like the marketing you know finding donations when we need them and all the rest of it so it's an exciting time for us because we're, we're transitioning into moving everything over to the Nepal end now, since founding uh, Seven Women, obviously you've established your responsible travel company and a cooking school. You've also released a book and a documentary telling uh, the story of Seven Women, as well as winning, uh, winning the UN Rotary International Responsible Business Award. What next? So I think um, we're in a fantastic position at the moment where we've basically shifted all of our operations to Nepal. So the women are selling their products direct to Europe and other countries the tour companies are bringing their groups to do cooking classes, which is generating a local income and supporting the manufacturing business because we have a shop at our centre in Nepal. And um, we've just started a hotel guest house project in Kathmandu, uh, which will be the next big uh, training ground for women to learn not only manufacturing skills and culinary skills, but hospitality skills that they can come in, be trained and then have employment pathways into other hotels in Nepal. Um, what next other than that? Our tour company is growing. We're looking for partnerships with more universities to bring uh, DFAT funded students over to Nepal to learn about social entrepreneurship and what we've set up in Nepal. And yeah, it'll continue to grow. And I think our, our vision is to reach remote villages with our literacy and numeracy programs and also supporting small micro businesses in those communities to support people to be able to thrive in those communities. Um, I do a lot of traveling, speaking about our seven women model and um, with the message that every one of us can make a difference, whether you know in your own families or your own communities or whether you want to you know, travel internationally and make a difference or you know, how can we as individuals, consumers and business owners make a difference? There are so many different ways. So if everyone did their little bit, the world would be a very different place to live in. And what advice would you have for somebody then who's trying to figure out the best way that they can make a difference? I think the strategy that I used when I was um, 
you know, really wanting to make a difference but didn't know where to go or where to look was I just thought to myself I'm going to volunteer in whatever organisation would have me here in Australia. So I did volunteering in Oak Tree, St Vincent de Paul's every Friday night. They have the food vans that go around the city. Um, taught art to West Papua and refugees for two years every Sunday at, um, at uh, St Vincent de Paul in Brunswick Street and the homeless through St Mary's House, House of Welcome, which is also in Brunswick Street. So through volunteering my skills, I learned so much about uh, inequality and those that really need support in our society. And that really shaped who I am today. I also was really curious about uh, Aboriginal Australians. So I volunteered on the Red Cross Remote Communities Holiday Program, which was in Daly River. And you know, if, if anyone can get an experience working or volunteering in an Aboriginal community, I strongly suggest it because that really shaped who I am today and they they're extremely you know connected to their land and their philosophy is is really inspiring so I did that and then with an anthropologist from uh, La Trobe University had the privilege of staying in Doinji a tiny community in northeast Arnhem Land so so basically my advice would be put your hand up for everything and anything because you're going to learn and that the further outside your comfort zone it is the more you will learn you know and develop so that would be that would be my advice do you think that it's these experiences that have turned you into such a successful social entrepreneur or is there a totally separate sort of business understanding that's required as well i think with us it's been you know learning every step of the way learning as you go along so it starts with the curiosity to learn more about the world and um, you know, even now I'm so curious to learn about more about impact investing and, uh, you know, different venture capitalists and business models. And, you know, that it's just that curiosity that you need in the beginning, I think, and passion to want to make a difference, which, you know, all young people have that today. You know, most of the young people I meet have that curiosity and just making sure you kind of act on that and seek out opportunities and say yes to things because, even if you're not sure whether it's exactly what you want to do, you'll you'll get more clarity and you'll be you know taking steps in the right direction um, to where you want to be. Um, it's a real shame we have to think about bringing our podcast to an end, but I do wonder if you maybe have any final observations or um, any anything that you think we've missed. Any further advice you might have for us? No, I think I've been to quite a few events at the Australian Institute of International Affairs, and I think. That these are fantastic events for young people to come along to and learn about different countries and politics and what's happening in the world. It really broadens, you know, people's minds and makes them aware of our world and also, you know, gives opportunities. Like I was, I was um, took part in the Careers Day that AIA ran a few weeks ago and. Um, gave a bit of a workshop on seven women and what we've done and the amount of young people that were there it was a fantastic audience they were so interested in in making a difference and learning more about what they can do in their careers so I think um, I think this is a fantastic organization and I encourage people to attend as many events as they can excellent thank you very much indeed Steph it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today thank you Thank you for listening to episode five of the Dyson House podcast. Next week, we take a short mid-series break before returning with episode six in two weeks time. 
Check the show notes this week for links to the documentary Bringing the Light, the story of seven women, and Stephanie's book From a Tin Shed to the United Nations. And as always, don't forget to subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud so that you never miss an episode.